Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. This is Joe Rosenstein, and I am a professor of mathematics at Rutgers University and author of Sidur 8 Ratzon and Machzor 8 Ratzon. Today we will be studying tractate Rosh Hashanah, Daf 30, Lamed. This Daf, and the next one, take a detour from Rosh Hashanah to continue the discussion of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's innovations following the destruction of the Temple. One of his, one of his innovations concerns the taking and shaking of the Lulav on Sukkot. The Mishnah on our page says that in the old days, Barishonah, that is, before the destruction of the Temple, the Lulav ceremony took place for seven days in the Temple, and only one day in the Medina, in the provinces. Why one day? Because it says in the Torah that on the first day of Sukkot you shall take the four species. So the commandment for the Lulav ceremony only applies for one day. Then why was the ceremony conducted in the temple for seven days? Because it says in the Torah that you shall rejoice before Adonai your God for seven days. And where do you rejoice before Adonai your God? That means in the temple. If there is no temple, then the logical conclusion of that reasoning is that the Lulav ceremony should only take place on the first day of Sukkot. So for those Jews who survived the destruction of the temple, those Jews who came to the pilgrimage festival of Sukkot and participated in the Lulav ceremony for seven days, year after year, their observance of Sukkot would be sharply curtailed. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai rejected that reasoning. The Mishnah continues, Once the temple was destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai ruled that the Lulav ceremony should be conducted in the Medina, in the provinces, for seven days. Lest you think that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's innovation implied that he thought that the tradition had been observed incorrectly in the past, he added that the Lulav ceremony would be carried out Zecher Lamikdash, as a reminder of how it was done in the temple. As in yesterday's example of blowing the shofar on Shabbat, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did not attempt to re-centralize the Lulav ceremony in Yavne, but rather he decentralized the ceremony so that all Jews could carry out locally what was once done only in the temple. Another ruling of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai that is relevant to us concerns the beginning of the month, what we refer to as Rosh Chodesh, which occurs at the time of the new moon. As you recall, Judaism runs on a modified lunar calendar. All of our feasts and fasts are determined by their dates on the lunar calendar. Pesach begins on the 15th day of Nisan, Tisha B'Av is on the 9th day of Av, 
Rosh Hashanah is on the first day of Tishrei. As a result, knowing when the month begins is essential. In the old days, Rosh Hashanah was determined by Re'iyah, visual observation. Two reliable witnesses had to come independently to the court in Jerusalem and testify that they had seen a sliver of the moon. And if the court accepted their testimony, they declared that day to be the first day of the new month. A lunar month is about 29 and a half days, so that a reasonable way of keeping the calendar in line with the lunar months is to alternate the lengths of the months between 29 days and 30 days. And that's approximately what we do to this day. The new moon may occur on the last day of a 30-day month, in which case both the last day of that month and the first day of the next month are observed as Rosh Chodesh. There are many problems with basing the determination of the new moon on visual observation, but this is not the place to discuss the details. One problem arose a few years ago for Islam, which still uses Re'iyah, the sighting of the new moon in Mecca, to determine when the new month begins. Although they knew that the month after Ramadan began around midnight, they had to wait until the new moon was actually seen before they could declare the end of Ramadan. The result was that Muslims around the world did not know in advance whether that day was the end of Ramadan or not, and therefore whether the Feast of Eid would be that night or the next night. The same problem could arise with Rosh Hashanah, and we will soon discuss that issue. In Judaism, we no longer base the new moon on Re'iyah. Indeed, in Talmudic times, there must have been an epic struggle between the traditionalists, who insisted on Re'iyah, and the modernists, who said that the determination of the new moon could be based on calculation. By announcing the time of the new moon on the previous Shabbat, as we do to this day, the modernists, in effect, won that battle. But when the temple stood, they relied on Re'iyah. So on the 30th day of the month, they did not know whether that day was actually the first day of the next month. So they didn't know whether today was the holiday of Rosh Chodesh or not. This problem was particularly acute on the 30th day of the month of Elul, because they didn't know whether that day was Rosh Hashanah or not. If it turned out to be Rosh Hashanah, then they would not be allowed to work. So they had to treat the whole day as if it were Rosh Hashanah, lest it really was Rosh Hashanah, and they would have violated by working on that day. They had to treat that day as if it were Rosh Hashanah, even though they didn't know if it would be. Moreover, the temple rituals for the day would depend on whether it was Rosh Chodesh or not, and whether it was Rosh Hashanah or not. So the next Mishnah tells us that originally, they would accept the witnesses' testimony all day, so that even if the witnesses arrived late in the day, they would declare that day to be Rosh Chodesh. But one year the witnesses came very late, and as a result, the Levites apparently chanted the wrong psalms. So they decided that they would only declare that day to be Rosh Hashanah if the witnesses came before the afternoon service. However, if the witnesses came after the afternoon service, the next day would be considered the first day of Tishrei and therefore Rosh Hashanah. Of course, since that day could have been Rosh Hashanah, they observed the prohibition of work on that day, so that in effect that day was observed as if it were Rosh Hashanah as well. This double Rosh Hashanah, referred to in the Talmud as Yoma Arichta, one long day, is the source for our present-day custom of observing 
two days of Rosh Hashanah in Israel as well as elsewhere. Although we won't discuss this topic here, we note that the rationale for observing the first two days of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot as holidays seems to be different from the rationale from observing two days of Rosh Hashanah. This is why Rosh Hashanah is observed for two days in Israel as well as in the rest of the world, whereas Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot are observed as holidays only one day in Israel, although they are observed for two days in the rest of the world. Once the temple was destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan Menzake declared that, since we are no longer concerned about temple rituals, even if the witnesses came just before sunset and declared that they had seen the new moon, that day would be Rosh Hashanah. However, the Talmud does not explain how the prayer and shofar rituals for Rosh Hashanah would be observed if they had to be condensed into five minutes. Perhaps by the time of the Talmud, they made the determination of the first day of Tishrei by calculation so that everyone knew well in advance which day was really Rosh Hashanah. Moreover, they had made a distinction between the new moon at the end of Elul and the first of Tishrei. What, you say? Isn't the new moon at the end of Elul automatically the first day of the new month of Tishrei? You would think so, but that assumption caused some difficulties. If, for example, the first day of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, was on a Wednesday, then the tenth day of Tishrei, Yom Kippur, would be on a Friday, in which case proper preparations for Shabbat could not be made. If Rosh Hashanah were on a Friday or on a Sunday, there would be similar problems. The solution they adopted was to doche, push forward, the beginning of Tishrei by a day. And that we do to this day. If the new moon occurs on Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday, that day is considered the 30th day of Elul, and the first day of Tishrei is the following day. So Rosh Hashanah is still observed on the first day of the seventh month, as commanded in the Torah, even though the first day of the seventh month is not really the first day of the seventh month. An ingenious solution. Indeed, if you look at the calendar, you will find that the first day of Rosh Hashanah is always on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, or Shabbat. You would expect that it would be evenly distributed among the days of the week. But if you look up when the new moons actually were for a number of years, you will find, as I did many years ago, that about three-sevenths of the time, Rosh Hashanah was actually one day after the new moon. A few minutes ago I mentioned the prayer announcing the new moon that is said on the previous Shabbat. We say that prayer on the Shabbat before every new moon, except on the Shabbat before Tishrei. It would obviously be confusing to announce the new moon, to announce that the new moon is on Sunday, when everyone knows that Rosh Hashanah and Tishrei begin on Monday. That concludes today's session. Please join us tomorrow as we discuss other innovations of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.